Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Ann Roby, an HR executive and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. And I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. And today, I am super excited about our guest, Darren Gold. He is a friend of Anne's, but this is the first time I'm meeting him. And as I was preparing for the conversation with Darren, I was really struck by some of the things he said in his writings. There are so many of the same practices that I use that my first thought was, oh my gosh, I'm so excited, a kindred spirit. And I was already excited to have the conversation, but now I am even more excited. I'm super excited as well because Darren and I have some really interesting parallel paths. Uh, So we were both at UCLA together, and we were probably at some parties together. More (laughs) about that in a moment. But we didn't realize, we didn't know each other in school. And it was really funny, Darren. I remember distinctly sitting at a conference room at StubHub. You were, and still are, a managing partner at Trium Group in San Francisco. And we had brought you in to to talk about some work. And we were just sort of doing that little catch-up thing that you do when you're meeting people for the first time. And Oh, where'd you go to school, UCLA? Oh, you know, any chance you're in a sorority? Yes, I was a, I was an 80 pie. And there was this little mischievous look that came into to Darren's eyes and realized that his wife was a sorority sister of mine in my same pledge class. So amazing to be connected like that and super, super excited that we did all of that work together. And I'm just thrilled that you are joining us today. So I'm actually going to let Darren introduce himself in a moment, but If you're not already familiar with Darren Gold, you should definitely pick up his book, Master Your Code. It is fantastic. It's it's like a handbook for how to live your life. I brought Darren in to speak with a group at my current company, and he has spoken about this all over the place, including a TED Talk. But really, Darren, so much of the story in your book is fascinating from the journey that has really brought you to where you are today. So that's where we'd like to start. We'd love to hear a little bit about your journey and, and how you got to where you are. Well, it, let me start by just thanking you for having me on and, and letting you know how thrilled I am to be in the conversation with the two of you. And, and it's just such a delight to be yet again collaborating and in, in, in conversation together. And what a small world that was that, that day when we uh, first connected the dots. So, so here we are. You know, I used to be really reluctant to to share my story and it and all of its rawness and authenticity. But I imagine, like most people, you know, I get I got to a point where I began to see that as an important part of who I am and important that I actually share it. So, you know, I'm happy to maybe start there a little bit, and then I can maybe give a couple minutes and weave that into what I'm doing today professionally. And I'm always interested when I meet new people to understand. You know, tell me a little bit about your childhood experience because, as you know, and in our work together. Our formative experiences oftentimes will guide how we show up in the world and how the, sh- how the world shows up to us. And so I've spent a lot of time dissecting and deciphering, disaggregating my own past. Uh, so really briefly, in many ways, I was a very fortunate child. I grew up with a single dad who had an intense amount of love for me and instilled in me a belief that I could do anything I wanted to. So I would say like it was a, a massive injection of self-confidence uh, and a gift that you know, I was really fortunate to, to receive and really serve me well. On the other hand, I grew up in a very volatile, unpredictable, some might even say unsafe uh, childhood. My dad turned to a life of crime when he was actually even before I was born. And I grew up into this very volatile situation where we lived sort of 
in various different places. And my dad had run-ins with the law and throughout my childhood, my dad spent some time in jail. And when I was a teenager, I had to bail him out. My mother, unfortunately, turned to a life of substance abuse and was estranged from her. And so I had this sort of very mixed childhood. On the one hand, a lot of love from my father who raised me. And on the other hand, an environment that forced me to grow up very young. And in many ways, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, served me. And in many ways, it wasn't until later in life that I realized all the places that was holding me back. And I'll give the very brief sort of description that propelled me into a, a life of getting educated. For me, it was education was the survival mechanism through which I could avoid life that my father lived uh, and that I was living as a child and, you know, went to UCLA where, where you know, and uh, you and I worked uh, together at the same time. Go Bruins. Go Bruins. <laughs> I worked full time. I was supporting myself. And uh, so first in my family to go to college was a natural debater. I was a poli-sci history major, worked at a law firm. And so my whole identity was I'm going to be a lawyer. And it turned out I went to law school and I loved law school. I did not like practicing law. I lasted about a little over a year. And I was very fortunate to have made a transition right at that time. And I spent a few years at a consulting firm McKinsey. And that was my introduction to the world of business. And it was fascinating. This idea of, uh, you know, how do businesses thrive and, uh, and grow? And this whole world of leadership started to open up to me. I went from McKinsey to the world of private equity, where at a very young age, I was sitting on boards of companies. Also, unbeknownst to me at the time, sort of becoming a student of leadership, because our number one goal was making sure we had the right CEO and senior team uh, running the companies we were invested in. And then I was thrown uh, later into my career into a CEO role myself. And I had the uh, really pr- the privilege of leading a couple companies. And um, there's an underlying story in all of this that we can get to, but I'm giving you the abbreviated version. Somewhere in there, there was what the leadership, late leadership expert Warren Bennis called a crucible moment. Mm-hmm. We'll explore that, I'm sure, at some point. Mm-hmm. But it forced me to take a really interesting uh, new direction, primarily inward. My entire life at that point had been sort of driven by a subconscious set of beliefs and values that I didn't even know existed, very much about achievement, very egoic driven. And there was this very interesting moment where that all came to into sharp relief for me and has led me to this most important path of self-mastery, self-discovery, and with that, a calling to give back what I've learned in this domain that I understand well, the business domain. And so what it looks like is I work with CEOs and their teams around questions of strategy and culture and leadership development. I coach a lot of very senior leaders and uh, I can finally say I've found my life's calling. I wake up every day, you know, incredibly grateful and excited about the work that I do. So that's the the brief intro to who I am. And I wrote a book, uh, which was... Minor detail. (laughs) Which was a really great experience. And I'm I'm, I'm very proud of that. So we can talk a little bit about that too. Awesome. Well, there's so many interesting things that you've already said in telling that story, ranging all the way from, you know, so often we want to just leave those childhoods behind us. And, you know, we think about that as something we've either overcome or gotten away from, or for many people, it's like we've built on it. You know, everybody has a different story. But I love this idea that so much of the seeds of our unconscious beliefs are sown 
when we are young, whether those are beliefs that serve us or beliefs that don't. I love that that's where you start. And there's so much, but I'm just going to pull out one other point for the moment, is you your comments about you came from a very loving childhood and it was very unstable and unsafe. And I'm sure we will talk more about these moments where two conflicting things are both true at once. Yes, yes. Right, and how that can sometimes be so challenging to struggle with. And so often we feel like we have to reconcile them somehow when it's not really about reconciling them, it's about holding them both as truths. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great point. And we, I'd love to get into that at some point. And the, the first point you made, which is, you know, our formative beliefs, beliefs that we form early in childhood often give rise to the way, you know, we we show up and see the world is the primary thesis of the book. And it's because we're at our most vulnerable when we're children. And we encounter events, traumatic in nature. And I use that word with a wide range. There's very, very serious trauma. There's you know, trauma where you were teased and bullied or felt unsafe in some way. And it's in childhood when we begin to construct, and I use that word really intentionally, beliefs that make sense, allow us to make sense of the world, allow us to feel safe, allow us to feel loved. And they quickly become unconscious. We don't even know they're there and they drive our behavior. And as you said, in many ways, they really serve us. And the more they serve us, the more we can't see them, the more we just take them for granted that that's just the way I am and the world works. And they always have some shadow to them. And as I kind of have you know, dived into this question of human behavior, I think it's those that underlying architecture of beliefs, which I call your program, which if you can understand and master that, and then be in choice about reconstructing, because whatever's constructed can be reconstructed, that is kind of the access to what I call an extraordinary life, um, regardless of circumstances. And I really take a stand for everyone in the book, which is that everyone has the opportunity to lead an extraordinary life, however you define that term. And mostly it's about finding the answers to that question inside of you, not outside in the world, which we don't have much control over, unfortunately. That's right. And I'm so curious about that process for you, right? And so, because it could have gone a totally different direction, right? It could have yeah. been, you could have followed in your father's footsteps. You could have uh, been hampered by those beliefs. And yet you said, you know, you consciously brought those beliefs to the surface and you are, were consciously choosing something else. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that choice point and how you developed some of that resilience. Yeah, I think a lot of it is luck. You know, there's some you know story, and I'm not going to tell it that great, and I won't tell it fully. But the the father who commits a crime goes to jail, has two sons. One son follows in his footsteps, commits the very same crime, ends up you know in prison. The other you know avoids that life, becomes a professional, blah 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 blah. And they go to the two sons and they ask, you know, how is that possible? The first son says, well, look at the father I had. And they ask the same question. The second one, he says, look at the father I had, right? So in some respects, it's a little lucky, you know, when you're, when you're young and you make these unconscious choices about what's important in your life. For me, uh, the moment of consciousness didn't happen until I was 40 years old, mm. you know? So I was lucky enough to have made some unconscious choices early in my life that led me to prioritize education, that led me to prioritize you know, family. And I think a lot of it was, you know, the gift that my father gave me in terms of, you know, what, you know, the beliefs that he instilled in me. 
there are all sorts of things that weren't working for me in my life. Mm. Uh, not, you know, really, te- you know, you look at sort of my life as it, as it was objectively a good life, but I was being held back in some, some pretty significant ways. And it wasn't until, and I share this both in my book and in my TED talk, I had a pretty traumatic professional experience up until right around age 40, everything was rolling my way. I mean, it was an extraordinary ride professionally, financially. I mean, I couldn't believe what I was achieving uh, given where I had come from. And then one day, very unexpectedly, I was fired. And it was the first real failure I had ever experienced. I believe in those moments of crisis, of failure, those crucible moments, that there is an opportunity to wake up. And I did. You know, it didn't happen like overnight. It took some time, but it was the catalyst for me to begin asking a different set of questions. Not a question of how am I going to get ahead, right? How do I stay safe? How do I stay financially secure? Those were the primary questions I was unconsciously asking, and they were dictating a certain way of living life. I began to ask questions like, why am I here? What is my purpose? Is this really what I want to do? How do I bring more of my heart Uh, into my work and into my life? How do I become a better father? How do I become a better husband? How do I become a better leader? Those are questions that I hadn't really been asking. So driven was I by this automatic, you know, uh, an automated set of of beliefs I was holding. And over the course of a few years, the questions began to emerge for me. And the biggest answer to that question was, and there were some fortuitous events that opened some things up for me. It's like, wow, I don't know myself at all. Mm. I think I do. Right. Like, I was like, oh, I'm very self-aware. I was like, no, not at all. <laughs> you know, self-aware in a very shallow sense. Sure. I had no idea. It was the, I was in the don't know what I don't know domain. I didn't even know that I didn't know. Right. And it was some experiences that we can, I can get into that, that opened that domain up for me. And I think it's like a one-way door. Once you go through that door, there's no turning back in a really good way. And it's a never ending path that I'm, you know, proud to say and pleased to say that I'm on. So we'd love to hear about how those doors opened and what, as you step through those doors, and I have one comment and I'm curious for your reaction to it is your comment that you'd never failed before and how often what seems like the worst possible thing turns out to be the best possible thing. Yeah. And I'm curious, just from your t- from the way you're talking, obviously you believe it turned out to be the best possible thing, but I'm curious also to hear how you were able to navigate from, oh my God, like this is the worst thing that could happen to me to, mm. wow, what a gift. Yeah, and I, one of my favorite saying is life happens for you, not to you. And I, and I really believe that. I don't think it's like a Pollyannish way of seeing the world. I think it's a very constructive and powerful way of, of interpreting your circumstances because it gives you access to, you know, effective action. And if you can begin to see, like, my circumstances are going to unfold the way they unfold, how I interpret them and give them meaning is the human superpower. And I oftentimes say human superpower is the ability to choose the meaning we give our circumstances. Now, easier said than done. And it wasn't like I woke up the next day and said, oh, let me choose the meaning I'm going to give to my circumstances. This is something that I've acquired. And really what I'm trying to do in my book is give the wisdom that took me several years and in many cases, several decades to acquire 
to people so that they can access that right away. So it creates an opening for them to, to say, wow, this really resonates. This touches me in some way. I want to learn more. For whatever reason, I didn't stumble across that. Hmm. And so to your question, you know, for me, it took a while. To be really honest, I was incredibly fearful. It's like at the height of the Great Recession, you know, 2000, and it started in 2008, right? So I had a massive fear around financial insecurity born out of, you know, my experiences from childhood. I had a lifestyle where I had children in private school and, you know, I'm like, okay, so like, here it comes. And always a perspective, maybe born out of childhood when that I'll, I'll make it work. And to take perspective, which is, boy, a lot of people have it way worse than I do. Hmm. There's always been a rule unconsciously and now more consciously that I've chosen is to be able to take perspective uh, and just notice that I was still in a really privileged position. But I went right back into the thing that I left. I got another job in private equity as a partner, <laughs> you know, because I it was all out of fear. You know, I was playing not to lose rather than playing to win. Right. And I didn't have the psychological and egoic maturity to see that, let alone do something different. And I don't fault myself and it's sort of very understandable in retrospect, but it was in that choice that I started to say, like, something doesn't feel right. And then I had some, some really wonderful things roll my way. I was in a, on a board of a company and all, it was a big for-profit college, you know, in a time when that industry was going through much needed and dramatic change, regulatory change. Mm-hmm. Our CEO left. We didn't have a CEO. And something, my, some instinct in me said, this is my time to raise my hand. I had a really good relationship with the team and, and I said, hey, to my partners at the private equity firm where I was now working, can I, can, you know, can I lead this business on an interim basis? And that turned into a permanent basis. And it was an extraordinary career pivot. It led me to do that CEO role again in a similar institution. I had a almost evangelical vision for transforming higher education. And I said, it's got to start in the classroom. I said, I've never taught. And so I ended up deciding if I'm going to preach this new strategy and vision for this institution, I got to get in the classroom. And I began to teach at night. I was CEO during the day and I taught at night and I was teaching adults, underserved adults. And I became really fascinated. How do you get adults to transform, to change, to learn? So I brought, started diving into Carol Dweck's work around growth mindset and self-concept. I explored the world of mindfulness, which was new to me. All of the sciences around behavior and learning, and I began to incorporate that into the curriculum. And it was through that experience that I began to ask questions for myself. And slowly but surely found myself in the profound question of like, who am I and how do I learn and develop? Because I can't really teach or offer anything to anyone if I'm not doing it, you know, myself. So that's, that's sort of how that, how that all happened. It's not as clean and straight uh, as it might, as I might would wanted it to be, but that's how it happened. But I think that's that, true for all of our stories. Yeah, They're yeah. not as clean and no. straight as we can make them sound in the well, telling. And, and thank goodness for it. Cause that's what makes a far more interesting journey. Right. Yes. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, I mean, you've lived a very, very rich life. I do want to, I want to dig in a little bit on some of the things that cause some of these awakenings and some of the things I know are in your book, some tools that you recommend to folks. Because when you're in that depth of despair, when you get fired, when you get divorced, when something terrible happens, there's death or illness or whatever, man, it can be so hard to look and see, man, there's still possibilities. It's, it's so difficult when you're in that moment. 
and you say you got a you got a job sort of right away. Mm. But at the same time, I heard you say, and I could feel it that there's a little bit of a awakening that started with that. Mm. And I know you employ some tools to help you, and you encourage the folks that read your book to also use these tools to sort of kind of help you wake up to that. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about those. Yeah. Well, I always point people to books. You know, book and probably the reason why I wrote the book, right? I think if uh, books can change lives, yeah, you know, they really can, especially well, well written, thoughtful books. So I always encourage people to become a reader if they're not already a reader. And if they already a reader to delve into this whole genre of personal development and psychology books alone, I think can provide the opening for <clears throat> realizations and insights. And then of course you've got to act on those insights. So so I think for people that find themselves in sort of those crucible moments and haven't really kind of entered this domain, it's, it's just a fascinating one. The other thing is there is a whole industry of conferences and workshops and experiences, because this is experiential work, right? So, which is what I jumped into that completely opened me up in the best way. You know, you know some people have different, you know, views of, of, these kinds of experiences. For me, it was like I was a kid in a candy store, you know, uh, like learning about myself. And and I've become a bit of a, a dabbler in multiple modalities, even the title of your podcast. A lot of it is, you know, comes from the kind of Eastern ancient wisdoms. That's right. right? They've been around for thousands of years and the Western ancient wisdoms, you know, the Greco-Roman philosophies around Stoicism, right? It's The knowledge is all out there. And it's been adapted for the modern world. And when I first discovered that, I was like, holy cow, this is unbelievable. And I just devoured it. I devoured it by reading. I devoured it through putting myself in some pretty uncomfortable experiences. Hmm. And uh, it was the right time for me. So it also has to be the right time for people as well. You made the comment about you had been playing not to lose as opposed to playing to win. Yeah. And... I think that re- well, resonates with a lot of people around this idea of, I need to play it safe. Mm-hmm. I can't take a chance. I can't risk X. And you're talking about this awakening that happened over decades, but I'm curious if there was a moment where you really felt that shift of, ooh, I'm about to play safe here, and this is my opportunity not to. Yeah, it was probably when the CEO opportunity arose, mm. where I had to leave the comfortable, comfortable in the sense that I knew this world really well, the comfortable world of private equity with all of its financial security behind, and trust an instinct I was having, said, this feels right. And I remember the very conversation with my wife, I said, there's something telling me that I need to do this. And I listened to that. And in you know, in retrospect, it was that moment of like, do I play not to lose or do I play to win here? Do I take risk or do I succumb to the fear that's that's underlying this? And it was that was a moment that really uh, opened things up for me. The other thing I'd say, and it goes back, Sherry, to your question around what I would call polarities, two opposites. I actually like to call it playing not to lose and playing to win. Hmm. Um, that actually there's something really valuable in safety. Right. And there's really something valuable in taking risk. And if we can get the best of both of those, right? Like we don't, this isn't about being reckless, right? There's something about stability and you've got 
maybe families to support or yourself to support. There's something really virtuous about, about that. And there's something really beneficial about taking measured risk. So call it intelligent risk is the integration of that paradox. So too often we get in the versus world, as you write about in my book, and now we're in like, do I play to win or do I play not to lose? And that's a sucker's choice. That's right. Like, no, this is, here's a, a chance to integrate two opposites. And in retrospect, I think that's what I was doing. And I was like, okay, I'm, am I really taking a lot of risk? Probably not. Like, you know, given who I am and what I'm confident about I can, in, in accomplishing and this opportunity. So there's, there's an element of, of, of comfort and safety in that. And I'm really pushing myself. So I was able to do both at the same time. Well, and it this was clearly really something that you were very passionate about as well, right? I mean, I mean, you said from the very beginning that you invested in education for yourself yeah. as a way of really pulling yourself out of where you were. Um, and indeed, when I asked you the question, like when you're in those dark moments, I mean, your answer was go learn something, right? <laughs> like it, like yeah. take the opportunity. And, you know, I love what you just said about there was something you just listened to inside. And it's something that Sherry and I have been playing with and talking about on the podcast. And that is, we call it sort of a sacred whisper. There's mm. just something that you hear. My question for you is, you know, we get messages all the time. I don't know about you guys, but like there's stuff going on in my head all the time. Some of which is we should definitely ignore. <laughs> and so I'm just curious, like why that choice? Why, you know, what was it about, or how do you keep yourself how do you actually know when to heed that whisper? And what do you do if maybe you make a wrong decision about it? Yeah, it's, uh, I'm not sure there's any like crisp answer to that, but I'll again, put it into a polarity, right? So data versus intuition. Mm -hmm. You got a lot of people that like are very focused on data and you got people that are like over index on intuition. I'm going to trust my gut. That's right. Here we go again in a false dichotomy, mm. right? So this is about, no, there's wisdom in data there's wisdom and intuition. How do you integrate those two things? And so maybe the answer to your question is you got to pay attention to both. That's right. Right. And it's when you're really honoring both sides of that polarity that the right answer emerges and have some faith that even if the quote unquote wrong answer emerges and you take it, that'll probably end up being great too. That's right? right. So sort of goes to you, the underlying philosophy of your show here, which is like there be moments of time that you think are wrong decisions uh, that turn out to be wonderful. So right. also like the less attachment to the rightness of a decision, almost like putting that. aside that as a concept and saying, no, it's a, you know, we do the best with what we have at the moment. And if we're conscious and we're thoughtful, we integrate this tension, we make a choice, it'll unfold exactly the way it's supposed to. That's and right. that is going to be exactly perfect because that's all there is. <laughs> it's such a perfect comment in the context of everything we talk about is it's perfectly imperfect. That's right. And, and it's a journey and nothing is done playing out until it's done playing out. Yeah, that's right. hundred percent agree. And if you take that too far, then it's like abandoned. Well, I'll just do, you know, so it's again, it's all this, it's like, right. I'm a huge, you know, I get really geeked out on polarities and paradox. I can yeah. almost find the opposite in everything. And that's complexity. So a lot of the work, if I can just go there for a second, yeah. um, when I'm asked like, okay, what are the work, what's the work we're gonna be doing you know, in, in coaching together? And I say, well, and I steal this from the authors of Mastering Leadership, so I wanna give them credit. They say the imperative of the 21st century 
is the following, that we are living in an increasingly VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, right? The, the world's getting increasingly complex. We, there's absolutely no argument about that, given That's what's right. going on, not on the last year in particular. And it's only going to get more uh, complex and volatile. So we have a, a choice. We can either try to reduce the complexity of our environment, good luck, or we can increase the complexity of our own thinking such that it matches the rate of increasing complexity in our environment or exceeds it. That's the whole game. So polarity thinking for me, the ability to actually see things as opposites and see them as actual natural healthy tensions that can be integrated, that's a step up in complexity of thinking. I no longer see the world as black and white, either or. I be, the world starts to show up to me, not always, but in many cases as opposites that I can hold at the same time and actually see as opportunities. That's a way of thinking more complexly that that really serves you. That is such a beautiful way to think about it because I, I think often, and I love how you called it the sucker's choice, because often we feel backed into a corner, like it's this or it's that. Mm. And what I hear you suggesting is and, right? It is not or, but it's all about the end. And looking for, even when you feel completely backed into the corner, looking for where is that polarity, where is that tension point? And it can be incredibly difficult when you're in those tough spots. But I love, I mean, that is a tool in and of itself, right? Just look for a different perspective. It may not be the right one, but look for any different perspective in terms of what's happening. Yeah. And that will help and serve you for sure. That's an ancient wisdom tool. That's a one example, right? Yin and yang, right? Oh, right. So we, we, this has been around forever. Um, the work of Barry Johnson is uh, the work that I rely on mostly. He's been able to take that ancient wisdom and create and adapt it to the modern world and create a tool. And I write about that in my book. And he's created something called a polarity map where we can begin to, to map these things and then to begin to identify actions that we can take. I'll give you a classic one that most people can relate to in the work setting, direct versus kind. Mm. Am I direct and like just tell people, you know, the honest truth and ruin the relationship? Or am I kind and dilute the message and not give them the benefit of, you know, honest, authentic communication? Again, another sucker's choice. What about how do I be direct and kind? That's right. How can I show up compassionate, loving, right? But be very honest. And I had a problem with that for a long time. I was very, I, I had a huge need for likability. And that was one of those childhood, what I call survival strategies. It got in my way of being direct. It, did, it wasn't even accessible to me. And you can imagine in increasing roles of leadership, not having the ability to be direct going to hold you back uh, in insert. So it wasn't until I began to see that, wait a second, there's an opportunity to do both. I don't need to change. I need to expand. Right? Right. What would it look like to show up really kind, generous, compassionate, and be very direct? And guess what? That's really effective. It's very attractive to people like, yeah. oh my gosh, how do you do that? So a lot of the work is about exactly what you said, and it's finding not everything's a polarity. There is a room for either or, lots of room. Again, Either or and both and is a polarity in and of itself. <laughs> totally. So we can fall into the trap of everything's both and, and that's kind of annoying, um, <laughs> right? Because no, do I hire this person or I don't is a choice. It's an either or choice. <laughs> there you go. Right. There are many things in life that are an explicit trade-off. Yes, and you got and, Right, and I think we tend to err on the side of everything is an yes. either or. This is about finding where where it isn't and uh, having both of those available to you. Right. Yeah, right. That's awesome. 
So much of what you're talking about, the word that keeps coming to mind is expansion, Mm. that it's expanding your capacity to see the polarities. It's expanding your capacity to hold them both. It's expanding your capacity for your own transformation, expanding your capacity for your own discomfort, because these are not comfortable, right? This is not comfortable work to do and changes to make. But that, that's just the word that just keeps coming back up in my mind is expansion. It's just, one of my favorite words. And it's, so I'm so glad you said it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one that I always impress upon people that this isn't about change. Change implies demonizing something about you, right? Diminishing something about you. This is about, no, it's about finding what's serving you, what's not, and then expanding, right? What's, what's available to you. And that invites people into this work as opposed to like, I got to give something up, particularly I got to give something up that's actually served me really well. It's been a survival strategy for, you know, like, why would I ever give that up? Right. And so the way we talk about change is designed to induce the very resistance to change that we're trying to avoid in the first place. So yeah, using the language in the right way actually can make a huge, huge difference. Well, and I just think, I think that having that moment of pause and reflection is such, even that, that's a powerful tool. What is serving me? What is not? Also a polarity, uh, right? But having that moment is to slow down and recognize this actually may serve me even in certain circumstances. I mean, your example is a beautiful one, be direct or be kind. In some ways, the directness is can be the most mm-hmm. kind thing in some ways. And yet we put ourselves in these corners. And so taking that moment of reflection and really going deep inside yourself, a huge gift and a huge tool for people to just take that moment to pause and then listen, listen to yourself. What is working for me and what's not? Yeah. Well, you're raising a great point that I want to add to the conversation because particularly in the Western world, we're like, you know, we're on like brains on sticks, right? Everything, everything's cognitive, right? How do I think my way into or out of this situation? And what we neglect is our bodies, Right. Also the soma, right? Our physiology. Now, if you're not aware and attuned to what's going on in your body, the ability to actually even pause and notice, right, right, isn't even available to you. Right. So a lot of my work actually gets into regulation of the central nervous system. Mm. Right. Now we we because we know so much about how the brain and the body basically are one. There really is no, there's no you know, duality here, despite what Descartes said. But understanding how my own physiology, my own breathing, my own posture, my own facial expressions, the underlying foundation of sleep, diet, and exercise allows me to access the part of my brain that can actually see and be aware and self-regulate and therefore be in choice has to be attended to. I often say like the most underleveraged asset a leader has is his or her own physiology. Mm, you know, they, how many people, how many leaders do you know that go into a room and ask themselves the question, how am I going to leverage my physiology so that I can optimize my performance and the performance of others? <laughs> Not many. It's a weird question. I ask that and people are like, I've never asked that question. That's weird. <laughs> and yet how I am physiologically, even in this conversation, right, will affect what shows up to me, what's available for me to, to point to and act. And, and here's the really important thing. My physiology, your physiology, where we co-regulate as mammals, we mimic and mirror each other, mm-hmm. has a profound influence on the physiology of those that we are in conversation with, those that we're leading, 
those that we're trying to influence in the best sense of that word. And so if I show up dysregulated, right, and I'm in a position of authority as a leader, guess what's going to happen to the physiology of the people in the room? They're all going to mirror and mimic me. Now you have a bunch of highly anxious, unregulated people trying to be creative, trying to communicate, trying to collaborate, and it doesn't work. So Yes, there's a big cognitive part of this game. There is also a very important somatic and physiological part of this game. I'd love to stay with the somatic piece for just a second, which is we forget, and I often say, and I know this can sound a little weird, but that we still have most of the same needs we had as toddlers. We need to eat, we need to sleep, and we will be very cranky if we give short shrift to any of those, right? And yet- we forget that as adults, and then that impacts everything, our physiology. Yeah, you know, it's just, it's a cycle. And sometimes the most important thing you can do is to go back to the most basic things. For sure. There's a great recent book called How Emotions Are Made by uh, Lisa Barrett Feldman. And she explores this uh, notion of interoception. Mm-hmm. And what she basically is pointing to is what's your physiology is constantly looking for cues and then sending signals to your brain. And those signals are if to be very reductive. One of two things, either I'm safe or I'm in danger. If it says I'm in safe, you know, your prefrontal cortex is online. You can do your best thinking. You can self-regulate. You have access to emotional intelligence and executive function. If it's I'm in danger, right, your amygdala lights up your limbic system. And it's really all about survival. You know, my my focus narrows, I'm looking for select data and I'm looking for one of three responses, fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. We're not going to be at our best. So what affects interoception oftentimes is sleep, diet, and exercise. Mm -hmm. And we don't need the science to understand this. If you've ever woken up with not enough sleep, having exercised in a while, and you're hungry, what is the quality of your conversations going to be like with your loved ones? Right. Probably not as great, right? right? My loved ones. I don't even want to be with myself in those circumstances. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, people kind of get tired of hearing, you know, prioritize sleep and diet and exercise, but, you know, you can get through that, but you're just, you're you're stacking the odds against you when you're neglecting those basic needs, as you said, because of how the neurophysiology works. It's, uh, we have too much data now to ignore the connection between the two. And there's sort of a bravado that seems to exist Mm that I try to sort of dispel in my work, which is like, I can get by on four hours of sleep or some people can, by the way, but, you know, I question that. Sure. You can get by. Do you, is that what you want right. to get by, or do you want right. to really succeed and thrive? So. Absolutely. And I think that there's so much that goes into everybody's choices and how they, how they choose to live. Right. And choose to spend their time. And I love what you were saying. It's really such a beautiful tool when you're in those moments of feeling the world is not going my way, something terrible has happened, that we keep coming back to this because it's so important and it's so difficult. And so the gift you just gave us is one of the tools that we can use is to get still and pay attention to what's happening in our body. Yes. Right? And in those moments when you just think the sky is falling, that's the opportunity to take yourself into nature. That's the opportunity to find yourself quietly sitting on a yoga mat or just regulating your breath and getting back into the rhythm and how things are actually feeling in your body is a huge gift in those moments when we find difficulty. 
Yeah, enormous. You know, I sort of try to disaggregate behavior into these three constituent parts. And I think this is a helpful framework for people that are want to be at their best. You know, oh my God, I just had that conversation and it didn't go the way I wanted it to. Right. Right. I blew up. I was short. Um, I did I, I bullied that person. I wasn't kind. Whatever it is. I mean, we have those all the time. And I say, okay, when let's deconstruct what happens. And I say, there's always three things that are that are occurring. Number one, there's something going on in your body. There's a somatic marker, right? There's a tightness in your chest. There's some pit in your stomach. There's a, you feel flushed, whatever it is, right? There's usually some very pronounced somatic marker that you, if you're paying attention, can see. Two is there's an emotional footprint or signature. Anger, frustration, contempt, disdain, whatever it is, right? Anxiety that accompanies that somatic marker. And three, there's some cognitive narrative, some story you're telling yourself in the inner tracks plane, right? Which is a story, not fact, it's a story. And those three things together result in some pattern behavior. And if you want to like be at your best, that you need to be, be masterful about those three things. And, and the more you do that, the more you say, okay, I'm in that moment, I can start to feel, oh my God, that's the, the telltale sign. You know, my, that pit in my stomach and I'm feeling angry and this is the story the more you can kind of slow down the tape a little bit and then give your body and your brain a chance to catch up and, and be in choice. And how do you do that as you access it through the body? Yes. You can't think your way into this. So I, I, I point to these three things, you know, posture is really important. This is the work of Amy Cuddy, right? The power pose, right? How we hold our bodies. You know, if we're open, our bodies are telling our brains one thing. If we're closed, and, and these are subtle things that we don't even notice, right? Like, oh my God, my arms are crossed. What's that? that that's not a very open posture. Right. Facial expressions, primarily smiling. Mm-hmm. You know, I, well, let's bring some levity and fun into this. And if I smile, I ask people oftentimes, smile like it's the, the funniest thing and raise your hands in the air and try to think a negative thought. Like it's impossible. <laughs> Can't do it, right? So we're using our fit, these 42 muscles in our face. And then maybe the most important thing is breathing. How many times have I gone through an hour long meeting? And I was like, oh my God, I, I don't know if I, I barely breathe. Right. Oh, okay. All I need is one sort of deep breath to reset my physiology, my neurophysiology. And I'm like, okay. And I, you know, so there are these little things we can do that if we pay attention to and practice become second nature and uh, part of the toolkit, I think. That's fantastic. What, what a huge gift that is to, for all of us to, to focus on the, somatic or the physical, the emotional and the cognitive and paying attention to each one of them and, and what story it's telling us. It's just huge. It's beautiful. Yeah. And on that note, I'd love to, you know, for you to think about or consider or share with us, if you could go back uh, to that little boy that was getting bounced from apartment to apartment across LA and, and other places and could give, have a little chat with that, with that little guy, have a conversation with him. What, might you share with him? What advice might you give him? Well, now you're going to, now I might get emotional. All is well, welcome here. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, part of me wants to answer that question. I'll, I'll answer it in two ways. Mm. Part of me, it was like, I wouldn't change a single thing. All right. I, I wouldn't, you know, first of Beautiful. all, as a young boy, I'm not sure I'd have the capacity to hear any of it, mm. uh, but I know that's not what you're asking. But there's a part of me that's like, it is unfolded exactly the way it was supposed to. I think the biggest part of me would not go back in time and and do anything different. Now, I think what's underlying your question, it might be a little different, so I'll answer it in the following way. 
you know, for me, it's about uh, the one thing I would say is you are loved. Mm. I think that's the universal human need is to feel loved. When you feel loved, when one, when I feel loved, right, everything else works in my life. And to the extent that things don't work in my life, it's a manifestation of my sense that I'm not fully loved. And maybe more importantly, my sense that I don't fully love myself. Mm. And so, you know, what would a the four-year-old, five-year-old Darren need to hear from the now 51-year-old Darren is absolute, unconditional, pure love. And that is something a child can take in. And that is when you feel that, the capacity to love yourself is a sort of natural extension of that. And then whatever happens, happens. I don't believe in a world of like material success. Like you can go through life feeling loved, man. You know, you've won the lottery. That is fantastic. And it really also harkens back to exactly how you started speaking about your father and saying he loved you deeply. And without sounding too trite, let me just say, we have so loved having you on our podcast. Honestly, this has been, I mean, I have pages and pages of notes here. I know that our listeners are just going to get so much out of this conversation. I really, truly, genuinely am so happy you could be here today. I'm so thankful and uh, loved being on it on the show. So thank you so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. Fantastic. Well, you can find Darren's uh, book wherever you buy your books. It is called Master Your Code. And if you have the need for an an unbelievably amazing executive coach or focused on corporate strategy or leadership development, Trium Group in San Francisco and look up Darren Gold. Darren, thank you so much. Thank you. Darren, it's been awesome having you with us today. Thank you, Sherry. And that wraps up our episode for today. Please join us for our next episode of Flowing East and West, The Perfectly Imperfect Journey to a Fulfilled Life.